Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program True Crime Uncensored, now in 16th year of brilliance. It's produced by Magic Man Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear. That uh, character sitting there... Coughing uh, himself to death. Coughing himself to death. Uh, Not to death, please. Uh, It's Mark Boyer. And uh, my friend Travis Webb's on the phone. Hey, Travis. Hey, Burl. Hey, good to have you on the show. I'm going to give you credits here, okay? So people will know who you are. Uh, he was this drunk guy that I knew in Walla Walla. <laughs> Actually, uh, Travis uh, is a former rave promoter. He's been on the show before, nightclub owner. Uh, if you partied in the Pacific Northwest, United States in the 2000s, most likely you attended one of his incredible events, which I did, and I was amazed to use the guest, Gog and Thunderstruck, by how huge it was. About 35,000 people and uh, no fights. Must have been the uh, chemicals in the uh, <laughs> in the bathroom. Anyway, uh, he sold off that company, made himself a fortune, and uh, he devotes himself now to having medical problems and pursuing uh, his passion for writing. And, uh, Where's the part where he gives some of that fortune to us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh well, uh, that comes later. I visited him in Las We had a good time. Uh, actually, I have two books with similar titles, one called Headshot and one called Headlock. And I got the story, which is the true crime story, for Headshot from Travis, because it was his uncle was uh, one of the uh, true criminals. And so I decided to put him in my, my, my mystery novel, private eye novel, Headlock, where he plays himself. Don't you, Travis? Yeah. And be with, anybody ever comment to you in Walla Walla when you were there about being in that book? A little bit. Mostly your friends, bro. <laughs> yeah. I guess you have to read my stuff first, don't they? Wow. That would be fun. <laughs> uh, your life has been going good except for uh, almost dying a few times this year. You got a, a comic book series out, and you've been helping me with some of my true crime stuff. Uh, yeah, we've mentioned on the show before uh, the Twisted Twins, which uh, we didn't tell the story, which we will let you do today, but it was going to be an episode of and the week it was going to air, the father of the Twisted Twins got hold of Matthew Watts, the uh, producer, and said, if you run this episode, I'll kill Well, we didn't run the episode. <laughs> But the book will be coming out, and you helped us with it. Uh, would you be so kind as to uh, tell the audience what an exciting story it is? Well, uh, I mean, just to note, Burl, that that was almost eight years ago, wasn't it? Uh, no, a couple of years ago, three, four years ago. But it was this year, this year, actually 2023, that that episode was going to air. Oh, I was aware of the pandemic happening, and... All my timelines are messed up, but 
Yeah, so the twins were uh, two guys who had a lifelong friend. Uh, they moved in with him. Uh, they played Magic the Gathering. Uh, they're adequate at it, uh, good enough to, to move around. They were also pretty good at poker and other card games. There was some type of dispute between the person who let them move in and themselves, and later their father was like, hey, why is there a smelly U-Haul? And it turned out they had uh, killed their former close friend. Well, that wasn't and, very nice of them at all. No, and, and they were kind of, you know, they, they're really good at lying, I would suspect. You know, they I don't know. That story is such an odd one because that dynamic of people um, kind of happens. It normally doesn't result in murder, but, you know, you these friends, they all play, like, a lot of games together. They don't have a lot of money. They don't come from money, you know, and the little things to them mean a lot. You know, like, <clears throat> a new car is a big deal to those people, or even, you know, those right. Are, um, uh, or even a, even a recently built car is a, is a pretty good thing, you know. Uh, becoming a manager at a store is like the the thing that people from those groups want to achieve. And you know, looking for a way out through something like Magic the Gathering or poker or anything else seems like a dream. But you know, they started thinking they're going to get close to it. I think. And normally, those kind of relationships can have weird situations when they move in together because. You know, the, the, if you think about it, like, the twins could have been stealing cards or just using the dude's stuff, and it just began to escalate and escalate. And, you know, the end result is, is murder. And I think back when I was helping you do a lot more research, a few years ago especially, uh, we, we ran into a quote, and you'll probably remember who said, but, you know, most murders, like 99% of murderers only kill once and get it out of their system. It's because of some extraordinary factors in their environment right. they don't see another option for. You know, and when you're poor and you don't have a lot of options and having enough people in it because that's the only thing you guys can afford, that environment's very small and can be tested very easily. Well, they not only killed this guy, it wasn't just because they were mad at him about something, but they wanted the, those cards from that game. Because they could get yeah. money for it. Yeah, so that, that's the other aspect of it. So I, I didn't want to go into that until we, we, we uh, opened that door, which is, uh, you know, obviously the Ruby had a lot of cards. And the design of Magic the Gathering, when, when Richard designed it, was that um, there would be a base set of cards, right, an original set. Uh, you know, uh, I think around that time they would have been unlimited or revised. And then you had other cards expansion that that would come out and each expansion set would have a limited run or had run cards available to them because they just were there when those cards became available right so they would go and play younger players who had newer cards and the younger players were like whoa that's the first time i've seen like a black lotus or you know uh, um uh, atog or you know a, a elephant graveyard um and so that was the design so those cards tend to go up in values as the older they are, probably more so than anyone expected at the time. And um, Hasbro brought the company that produces them, so that's changed a little bit. But So their friend's collection did have some really old cards, even for that period. And that was around the time there was an astronomical boom in the um, speculation market gathering. 
So if he had something like a black beta, you know, that was tens of thousands of dollars even then. Wow. You'd never think that, you know, uh, cards from some board game are much money. Right. It's obsessed with it because, well, first, it's just the, the rarity. Human by nature gives obsessed with rarity, right? I'm the only one with this thing. I mean, I make a joke about Corvette owners all the time, which is Corvette owners always think that their, their Corvette is the most special Corvette in the world, and that's why they always want high prices for them, because there's something special about their one Corvette. And these cards, especially the older ones, had such limited runs because Wizards of the Coast, the manufacturer, was an extremely small company and didn't have access to, like, real mass production for card manufacturing, right? They were, right. They were printing, originally the first alphas were being printed by kind of a print-on-demand, well, not print-on-demand like we think of it now, but, you know, through specialty printing that they could get access to that normal, almost consumers could get. You know, like, it'd be effectively, and I don't know if this is true, but this is how I imagined it when I was a kid. They went online, they found the only person on a, in Portland that could print cards, and that person printed their, and they paid a premium for it because that's not normally but they what do, that yeah. car company does. Yeah. So this guy had tons of cars. He had old cars that were worth a lot of money, and the twins wanted money. Well, let's just toss in, hey, just toss in one of my favorite parts of the story. The twins worked at a Waffle House. That should tell you the kind of money, you know, income they were used to. And here's a $100,000 card collection. And every time they go out and play at a tournament, they're exposed to how much their friend and soon-to-be roommate's card collection is really worth. Every time they're out, they see these things like Black Lotuses and, and you know, uh, oh, man, I'm trying to remember all the cards from back then, but... You know, they're seeing these cars and they're seeing other people having them and they're seeing a single car go to five to $10,000. And they're literally, those same cars are just sitting in it, probably the living room or the bedroom of their friend who's letting them crash on their couch. <laughs> oh, the thunder, the temptation of easy money has a very strong appeal, especially to people who don't mind killing other people. Yeah, it'd be like having the hope, having your roommate have the Hope Diamond and he leaves it on the coffee table. <laughs> So uh, they murder him, and they put him in the U-Haul. <laughs> they go to their dad. They go to see their dad. Their dad goes, gee, the U-Haul stinks. Could you take care of that? I don't know. Some people lie really easily, and they make up one of the weirdest stories ever. Like, they're carrying around a dead dog or something, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. in the U-Haul. That was weird. Like, it's like... Yeah, we hit a dog and we didn't know what to do with it, so we put it in the U-Haul two weeks ago. Yeah, because we want to give it a proper burial. <laughs> yeah, with a clergyman. And also, why were they driving around with, with their roommate's body? Like... Well, that's similar to uh, Robert uh, Lee Yates, uh, who murdered this woman in his van and his blood all over the place. And he says, oh, I hit a dog. And uh, I put the dog in the van when I took it to the vet, but it was too late. The dog was dead. Help me clean up all the blood. Yeah, the, the stories people make on the spot that they think is going to help them get away with something like murder is often really weak. You know what I'm saying? And they're very similar, too. It's always like, hit a dog or the the house cleaner was over or I don't know why she was over. I wasn't there. 
well, we all saw your car there, and there's video footage. Why well, don't know that maybe that's old video footage. What? Dude, <laughs> come on. You know? You're right about that. Uh, people usually don't, people who commit murders, even if they plan them well, which is a bizarre concept, uh, usually forget something such as a closed circuit camera on the corner just filming the entire thing. Follow the one step further. Their own closed circuit in-house camera is on, and they don't think about it. Oh, wow. I bet that's caught some people up. Yeah, well, I was just, I, I don't remember the article I read, but there was a murder charge recently where they got caught through their Alexa. I was just thinking about Alexa of catching somebody. I wonder how that worked. Yeah, I, I have to re-Google that. So your listeners, you might want to Google that one. But there, it's just it's just silly. You, you make all these plans and you don't plan for the simplest things. Or, like I said before, you make up a lie. And the lies are always the same. They're, they're never original. Like the dog ate my homework. The dog ate my homework. Yeah, it's almost genetically coded to humans. <laughs> Very strange. Uh, I thought it was... It just didn't occur to me, but one thing that came out of the research of this story is that identical twins often are sexually active with one another. Yeah, that's weird. Apparently, it's it was weird to us because we're not identical twins, but apparently it's very, very common that there is a dominant twin and they all have the sex together, even... Though, uh, all that is, I guess, incestuous, uh, is more about power and positioning, pardon the expression, than it is about sexual desire. The, the twin thing is it's weird. It reminds me of, well, I was at a party once, and there were twins there, and there was a girl, and I was sitting in a chair across from the, on the couch, and the girl sitting next to the twins kept talking to only one of the two twins and not the other twin who was also listening. And asking her all these questions, like, what's it like to be a twin, blah, 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 blah. And then out of just nowhere at this party, this girl says, have you ever effed it? And just look on the twin's face. And then the girl goes, because if I had a twin, I would eff it. And I'm like, how yeah. does that come out like that? It's like narcissists making love to yourself. I, I never thought about that, but, like, it, it has come up in media too recently. Um, you know, like the whole Loki thing. I don't know if you watched that series, but Loki's only person Loki ever falls in love with is, is another Loki. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. That makes sense. Cause he's a narcissist. Yeah. It, that, that part of the story always threw me off a little bit. My, my main, main focus on, on, on the brothers is really their, their, their lifestyle, you know, with you know, that, kind of pod of friendships where you have a group of people, you know, they, they play their games, they're in the Magic the Gathering, you know, they're trying to get jobs being uh, line cooks and stuff, and having that, that the part that's interesting is here's Magic the Gathering, and if the three of them has the ability to get out of that with all those cards, but isn't going to get them, of course, because they're his cards, right? So the temptation there, hey, man, all we have to do is get these cards and no more Waffle House, no more junky cars. Yeah, what were they going to get, Thirty-five grand or something? 
I think that's about what they got. They sold them uh, at some conventions and local shops. Um, but I mean, again, you know, when when your paychecks are two hundred dollars, three thirty thirty five grand seems astronomical. You know, they're in prison, but they separate them, which is mm-hmm. more of a punishment than the prison. I mean, they case they because they always were together. That's the story of the Twisted Twins. Dare we, dare we get into the murder case that you brought to me? Oh no! Actually, can we avoid that one? I think we talked about it the last time I was on the show. <laughs> well, well, I didn't want to cause problems. Just, just answer this: You did cause problems in your family that you participated in the book uh, "Headshot" uh, and brought that to me as a. I'm like, yeah, it, it did, and I don't blame you. I mean, the, the people in the family that spoke or played parts in that book, you know, they did what they did, and and that they told what they, you know, I I, I can't, I'm going to say this in a weird way, but they spoke what they believed to be true, and it could be true. I'm not saying that in the sense that they're not saying the truth. I'm saying, you know, they spoke with their truth of what happened, and somehow, you know. That resulted in all those families. Are you fading out there? Is your hand over the mouthpiece or something? Uh, no, it might just be our connection. Oh, there you go. We sound great now. All right, cool, cool. Here's the thing about Vegas. Cell phone service in Vegas is surprisingly bad. Yeah, I That's noticed that area. when I lived there. Yeah. Although I must say that your relative, who was a major character in the book, did, did, what, did do one very impressive ethical thing that was clever. What was that? I've that, forgotten. That was, he cut a deal with the prosecutor, the death penalty off the table, and guaranteed him that he could be paroled. He would testify against the other two men who were with him of their role in the murder. And the prosecutor signed the deal. And then when he got up on the stand, he told the truth. He said, they had nothing to do with it. They didn't know I was going to kill the guy. Neither did I. I did it on the spur of the moment, and I take full responsibility for killing the guy. They, they're they innocent. I didn't remember that. <laughs> and he managed to, but they'd already signed the deal, signed off on it, so he did get, he's out of prison. He got parole. Yeah. Went to his high school reunion. Hi, I am a, a convicted murderer. Nice to see you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, what, what have you been doing it, uh, since you graduated? Oh, you know, I've been kind of stationary for a number of years. <laughs> but he hasn't been in trouble since, so I guess that's a that's a good thing. Yeah, well, I mean, like like you say, you know, like most people who kill really only kill. I mean, I realize that group, they were a group that were serial killers. I want to point that out real fast, but strategically speaking. You know that was his kill, right? Yeah. People usually kill once, and it, because of their environment, and like you said, you know, like he didn't know he was going to do it when he showed up. You know, the environment was set up; all the things were in play, and that's usually what happens. Yeah, very, very strange dynamics when someone in the family kills somebody. It's also interesting that if the mother kills the father, or if the father kills the child should not be given to the surviving parent. Yeah. Which, I mean, you think, well, gee, uh, you know, mom killed dad. 
but I get to uh, stay with Dad now because Mom's in prison, <laughs> but Dad's dead. You know, or, or to another family member, you know, like an aunt or an uncle. Continually continues the dynamic of the tension of the murder. They're actually better off psychologically going to a foster family. Yeah, but I mean, the way the states do that is they send out letters to every family member that they can find that the the child can list that they're aware of, and they say, "Hey, can you take them immediately?" Uh, because the state research shows that most of the time the child will do a little better with an immediate family member through that crisis mm-hmm. rather than a foreign family member. Uh, oh, sorry, a foreign. Uh, person, foster care, foster care person. So, you know, they'll all get that letter. The question is, is when they get with that family member, like who who takes them on and what are their um, motives for taking the child after that situation? And then they keep reminding him of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until, until they have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be in that situation. Uh, going on to happier topics, even though it's a true crime show. Uh <laughs> Wow. Let's talk Kickstarter and your comic book. Oh, yeah. It's doing really good. It's coming up. The, the finish here uh, at the end of February will be the last Kickstarter for that series. Um, Starlight. Uh, yeah, that's a crazy comic book. Yeah, tell 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 our, our enraptured audience the plot of this comic series. Well, it's about some, uh, some kids, uh, two, a brother and sister, who are... Uh, who get kidnapped by transdimensional spider wizards after a night of sneaking ecstasy at a rave. Yeah, that makes sense. Happens all the time. Yeah. But yeah. We should clarify that these two kids were superheroes. Yeah, they were they were kid superheroes, and that's kind of the premise is asking the question, what happens to a kid superhero when they become a teenager and they don't get to be superheroes anymore? And, you know, instead of actually answering that question, I just have been kidnapped by transdimensional spider wizards. Yeah, that kind of puts them back, and they want to get back in the act. Or their, do their their powers come back? Are they always just laid latent? Or well, that's a little complex in the story. But one of them has powers, and one does not. Ah, well, that must be a real blow to the ego or self identity if you were a superhero and all of a sudden you're not. Yeah, that comes out in the book. Yeah, yeah. Wonder tra- Wonder Twins activate. <laughs> right, right. Imagine the Wonder Twins. Taking a bunch of ecstasy and then getting kidnapped by aliens, <laughs> and the one that turns into water can't turn into water anymore, as if that was ever a useful power. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could get flushed with that one. Yeah. There's so but, many yeah. superheroes that there are leagues of superheroes, like the Justice League and the you know. Avengers, and they have to the forming a union. <laughs> well, they have unions too. They had superhero unions. I mean, if you really wanted me to break it down, Alan Moore years ago kind of started the trend of the deconstructed superhero. And uh, one of the things about the deconstructed superhero is, you know, it's putting them in a reality-based world. And that's been the obsession of Hollywood and people kind of running what they think they need to write to get popular in comic book writing right now. And and Brett and I, my... my, um, my artist friend and Greg, we had all been talking about this type of stuff before. Well, Brett and I took off to Burning Man, and we may have been indulging in some partying down there. I said, how do you, how do you take a deconstructed superhero and make them a superhero again? 
And that's really the, 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 the core of the story is how do I take these two former superheroes who now live kind of a crappy life, going to high school, doing drugs, can't be superheroes. No one remembers who they were because they can't tell anyone they were superheroes. How do I make them super again? It, um, it reminds me of the movie Hitch with Will Smith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, oh. Spielberg with Robin Williams as um, uh, Peter Pan. I just watched that movie the other night. Um, a friend of the show, and near the end of the film, he's the catcher. Uh, Spielberg uh, threw, you know, said, "Why don't you sit in here?" And cause he 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 um, he and his wife uh, did the casting for the movie. That's uh, Michael Hershenson. Huh. It is a small world after all. I really enjoyed that film. And, of course, Dustin Hoffman played Captain Hook. Mm. But his demise in that film makes no sense. <laughs> but but since, when, since when does a film about Peter Pan have to make sense? Well, you know, the idea of Peter Pan growing up and forgetting who he was. At least with the kids superheroes, they remember who they were, even if no one else does. And that is also is emotionally traumatic. I could have been a contender. I used to be somebody. Okay, Mr. Brando. Oh, speaking of that. On the waterfront? On the waterfront. A little diversion here. If you see that film, mm-hmm. the scene where Brando is going, I could have been a contender. He and Lee J. Cobb are sitting in the back seat of a car, whatever it is. Then there's a long shot of him getting out of the car. He gets out of the wrong side of the car. He would have had to crawl over Lee J. Cobb to get out. <laughs> a little continuity area there. Uh, kind of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You've seen that, haven't you, Travis, with the pod people? Yeah, that was the uh, Kevin McCarthy you, version. Huh? Kevin McCarthy original. Yeah, yeah, Kevin McCarthy, the original one. The 50s one or the 50s? Yeah, yeah 50s. 50s one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's the bit about uh, in the beginning of the film, you have to be within the proximity of the pod for the pod to take you over. Right. But in the final scene in the cave, his wife is taken over by the pod, but there's no pod in the cave. Yeah, she simply falls asleep and turns into a pod person, right. more or less, which violates the entire, entire premise, premise of, of the, the film. film. But you're so into it at that point that you don't notice that any more than you notice that when Lon Chaney Jr., Lawrence Talbot, turns into the Wolfman, he's wearing a tuxedo, and then he turns into the Wolfman, and he's not wearing a tuxedo anymore. <laughs> Every time he turns into the wolf man, he's wearing a khaki pants and a khaki shirt. Well, most of the time, you know, a continuity, continuity errors just kind of nah. uh, just kind of dis- yeah. you know they get lost because they're they're so minor, they're so innocuous, you know. But uh, when when in a scene a character is wearing a blue shirt. And then uh, the next shot in the same scene, he's wearing a red shirt, then a blue shirt, then a red shirt. Yeah. Well, that's the movie uh, with Al Pacino, where he plays the mayor. 
and he's wearing a vest. He gives this big speech. The vest is button, unbutton, button, unbutton, back. It's very distracting. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, the continuity director, usually a script consultant, is sitting there with the script and then, you know, watching a scene and then making sure everything's back where it was supposed to be. Now, Carl Krogstad, who is a, a rather avant-garde filmmaker in the Pacific Northwest, he did a short film that was all about continuity errors. Uh, the people have a Camaro that is blue one minute, yellow the next minute, green the next minute. All that stuff was intentional. That was the, the uh, crux of the oh. biscuit, shall we say. But where were we? I got totally lost on that, <laughs> well, that digression. With that, we were talking about the superheroes and the... Uh, oh, tell, tell the name of the comic book so people can uh, catch up on the series. Yeah, that, that comic book is called Starlight, and it goes back on Kickstarter for its final issue in February. Uh, StarlightKickstarter.com. Yeah, I was just bragging to someone how you were able to finance this thing through Kickstarter. I bet yeah, you were, it's been really well. Yeah, I'm very proud of that thing happening. It's a great comic book, an interesting story, and fun to read. You know, the whole reason we ended up on Kickstarter is we had some offers from a couple of publishers that were pretty good. And one of the publishers uh, wanted some changes made that we didn't really agree with. And the other one told us that the one of the characters, Sarah, uh, couldn't do ecstasy. We had to switch the drug. And we were like, yeah, we chose that drug specifically because it correlates with some of the plot problems and some of her dealing with her trauma, why she would go to that drug and, and her superpower. And they're like, well, just just change it something else. You can you can do something like cocaine or marijuana. And we were like, what the fuck? Oh, sorry. It's okay. You're anyway, it. we, we were just a little bit confused uh, that you know we could we could have teenagers doing cocaine, but not not, not ecstasy in comics. So that was weird. Yeah, that um, is weird. Because... And, uh, what happened was uh, David Walker, who's also a really great comic book writer, and Brett had just done a book together on Kickstarter. Hello. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, I walked a little weird, didn't I? No, no, Burl's having trouble. Oh, yeah, this, my so. headphones showed it out, and I thought you weren't there. Sorry. Better? Gotcha, gotcha. Keep going. Anyway, so we, David Walker and Brett Waddell um, had done a, a Kickstarter, did pretty well, and we, Greg, Brett, and I had a meeting together, and we talked about, you know, do we want to keep pushing to talk to other contacts in industry because everybody's a pro but everybody's kind of shying away because there's drug use in this and there's a lot of weird stuff going on and nobody else is writing anything else like this and, and i mean i mean you know bro you've done books right and tv and been in media for years there's a thing where like the industries will go these are the trends so this is the only thing anyone can write yeah and it's usually two years behind where people are right and so what happens is is people will try to introduce new stuff, and that will start to get momentum. But until it gets momentum, only the upper echelon of the of that you know media industry, you know that 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 market, you know the best of the best can get away with trying out that new thing. You yeah, know, like the metaverse. Right. Or years ago, you know, I pitched I pitched something that was early, early, like no one even knew the term steampunk. And I pitched something that was very steampunky because I was kind of getting, you know, those influences. 
And they say, hey, this is really great. This could go somewhere, but can you do something a little more mainstream? And then, you know, five years later, the term speed punk starts really hitting things. You know, 10 years later, it's everywhere. And the guy that told me that I actually ran into him at a convention recently, you know, turned me down. He goes, man, you were so ahead of the time. If you had just been somewhere, if you would only been a name at that time, you could have broken so early on that market. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me for being ahead of the curve. With Starlight, we were like, um, let's just do it on our own. We can do it on our own. We're not out here trying to make enough so we can get this one story out, you know, and, um, uh, you know, do something that's not in the mainstream and maybe be ahead of the curve and hopefully someone will recognize it. And the next time we have something new come out, there'll be a little more trust because they can see that we can move an audience even on such a, a small scale with Kickstarter. And we've done a little bit of that, and it is interesting because, once again, just like with Steampunk, I wrote the original run of, of the, 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 the series that's coming out now. I wrote that five years ago. We had a pandemic and other things happen in between then and now, you know, and shopping it. So I'm starting to see things that I didn't see in comic books then, and not because I've, I've inspired these things, but because other people were getting that same input and creating, saying, hey, we, there's a gap here. Let's put that in my story. There's a niche here. Let's do that kind of story. And now I'm starting to see that hit the mainstream. And I'm like, gosh, dang it, i got to finish Starlight quick. Or everyone will think I'm copying them. Right, right. <laughs> that is a problem. Uh, what was the great rejection letter I had uh, for, for the book? Headlock. This book is every bit as good as something by they named two very well-known writers that happen to be friends of mine. And that's the problem. We publish them. Uh, we'll be competing with them if we publish your book. <laughs> Tell me more about the new logic. Right. Or what we often tell for Phil Champagne, they said, mind if we make all these changes to your true story? And they were all cliches. How about your girlfriend's brother? is a private eye. <laughs> and he said, I don't care if they make me a cartoon mouse, as long as they write me a check. <laughs> and, you know, they want to, or uh, MacArthur was on the show a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about screenplays. And if you write a screenplay that is really ahead of the curve structurally, the people who read it are checking to see if the structure is standard. Right. If it, and if it's not, I mean, this, is, this is a true story. A few years ago, I was working with uh, uh, Bill McDonald and uh, worked with people at Paramount and Warner Brothers. They all have these incredible collections of screenplays that people have brought to them. You, if you've been in any of these offices, you've seen them. You know, they got them all over the place. And every place I went, there was the same conversation. So we say, have you read that incredible screenplay by such and such? You go, yes, isn't it amazing? Everyone agreed it was one of the best screenplays they ever read, and no one would do it. It was so ahead of whatever curve it was, no one touched it. Could you imagine pitching Memento? A movie <laughs> in reverse? Remember, he's got all these I, yeah. tattoos yeah. to help him. Remember, because he's trying to figure out who killed his wife. Yeah, but it it's still structured in the Sid Field structure, so it it's not that hard of a pitch. It's clever, but the screenplay still is fitted in Sid Field structure. 
So I can't imagine pitching it, but especially if you're established, because Christopher Nolan was already starting to establish himself. He had been a cinematographer for a couple of years and stuff. So I, I can't. People bring up Memento all the time as if it would be this magical screenplay, but when you hold it in your hands and you flip through, things are hand, happening right where they're supposed to happen. The inciting yeah. events, all these things are yeah. really well-structured. Now, what's one that is revolutionary in structure? Can you name one? Nope. Comes to mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, the structure has changed. I will say this. Look, like when I first took a screen uh, screenwriting class, uh, you know, we were told 90-page respect, you know, and uh, we studied Sid Fields like it was like the, the Holy Bible. And now they're expecting 110-page screenplays, and everything's kind of adjusted a little bit. And there's this 10-page thing that's going that, you know, they expect now every 10 pages they want a joke or every 10 pages they need an action set piece or every 10 pages, right? So there's this new 10-page structure thing that's gotten really popular. And even that, that was eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, even that's starting to change again. So there is some change happening from the perfect golden structure, if you will, of the, of the Sid Field books. Uh, so it's harder to identify anything that, that's that revolutionary. I mean, a, a good sign of this is how many times have you gone to a film and you've guessed things that were correct when, when they're going to happen, and it's not because you know the story, it's because they're happening when they're supposed to happen in the movie. Right, right. It's like it used to be in the, the Saint with Roger Moore. There had to be a fight every you know in the episode at a certain point, so many minutes in. Fisticuffs, you know, with some, yeah, probably right before a commercial break, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now there's also there's a movie called Sisters by Brian De Palma. His first film. Mm -hmm. They hired Bernard Herrmann to do the music score because he did the films for Hitchcock. And this, you know, De Palma's always been kind of, you know. Low out. The uh, Hitchcockian yeah. director. Well, he shows the film to Bernard Herrmann, and Bernard Herrmann goes, nothing happens in your movie till halfway through. <laughs> and it's boring. He says, but that's what Hitchcock does. Says, yeah, but you're not Hitchcock. No. <laughs> uh, there, there lies the problem. Uh, Hitchcock was, was brilliant at staging suspense and holding that suspense for long periods of time. As, as he once said in an interview, you can have something blow up in the audience gas for a moment, right. or you can show the bomb being planted and spend 20 minutes as the heroes try to find it and disarm it. Yeah, then you got the suspense. Well, I'm going to point out, though, that Hitchcock probably got judged on how well-formatted his films were, and since they weren't filmed for any competition Oscars. Amazing but true. Now, the guy who wrote uh, Jurassic Park... Michael Crichton? Yeah. Yeah. Now, he does that with his books. In Jurassic Park, the action doesn't start until exactly halfway through the book. A lot of setup, though. Ridiculous of setup. It, it keeps you reading. Yeah, you're reading to figure out what he's setting up for yeah. 18 chapters, you know. And then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> James Cameron's an alien. Aliens. Yeah. And if you, if you go and look up the reviews for the movie, 
there are a lot of complaints about you don't see the monsters until an hour in. Ahead, you know, early, then they're going to complain about character development. Yeah, you can't win for losing. Well, that, that, that's just true in any media. Everyone has their own idea what the... I, that's why sequels fail, right? Because everybody gets their own headcanon when the movie ends and thinks what would happen next and gets their own ideas of what everything works. Even if they don't understand the movie or the characters or their motives that well, they get their own headcanon, and then you go make a sequel, it's never, ever going to be as good as the sequel those people had in their head. Except maybe Godfather 2. Well, I, I thought Aliens was great. Yeah, I said, yeah, Aliens I like better than Alien. <laughs> well, Alien was just a remake of, of uh, It the Terror from Beyond Space with Marshall Thompson, where they, I, I they, where they go and rescue him from Mars, and he is the only one left, and he claims that a creature killed his crew, and they think he's nuts, and they're going to you know get him home and court-martial him. But, of course, the creature climbs into the spaceship and starts terrorizing everybody and eating them. Eating, eating them. That's one way to terrorize people. Whatever. For sure. But that's what Aliens is. It's just a remake of that movie. So I'm going to back up my line about sequels because you both brought out two amazing sequels and something. Aliens uh, so is a better movie. <laughs> Uh, Aliens is a different movie that's a sequel, and I think that takes the audience off their guard enough and keeps well, them in the Which one is? Kind of worked out. Which one is? Aliens. Yeah. I well, think as a sequel, that's one of the smartest moves you can make, but it's also one of the riskiest moves is to just completely change the genre because you go from a haunted house horror movie to an action thriller. Um, and I think that's really smart, especially since he starts it out that slow burn is actually a way of getting away from the horror elements, because you know them from Alien, and getting you into the newer genre. Yeah, well, well, what about Hangover 3? <laughs> oh, please. Oh, come on, bro. There was, yeah, no, no Tiger, no Mike Tyson. Come on. <laughs> uh, but people were expecting a comedy. Well, you have to make it funny. Well, that's one of the rules of comedy. I mean, when that, you know, I forgot the actor's name. When they open the trunk and he comes out naked, screaming and yelling. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's a real doctor, you know. I didn't know that. But he was a very funny scene. So what else is on your agenda creatively wise? Uh -oh. yeah, we got to move your phone again. Get, get back in uh, wherever you were. Uh, this, there we go. I'm looking at the Albert Payne estate. Um, I don't know if you remember Albert Payne. He died last year uh, from dementia. And complications. Uh, a, a director that a lot of people don't remember, but he did like the Cyborg movie with, uh, that's the easiest one to say, right? The Cyborg movie with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, he did uh, Nemesis, uh, Two Guns, um, just uh, a sword and a sword with the three swords with the two lots at the end. Um, so I've been working with them to try to get some of his uh, last works done. He he had basically uh, completed a uh, kind of crazy gods and angels and cybernetics, like super cyberpunk film that he was trying to do as kind of his opus because I think he knew that, you know, his time was coming. And he filmed almost all of it uh, right before he died, and then he died. And so they have this pretty much like, 80%, maybe 90% completed amount of um, footage 
and we're trying to put it back together into a, a movie and get it released. So I've been working on that. Um, that, must some, be, uh, that must be uh, challenging. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's funny because there's some things that were extra challenging be, because he had dementia, and people don't didn't want to question what they were shooting. And uh, there, there is some instances where I'm looking through this, and I'm like, oh, I can see why no one thinks this makes sense. Be, be, because it's all over the place, and it doesn't follow the screenplay at all. And I think he was getting ideas from things he wanted to tidy up or put together, and he was just going for it and trying to get it all together, and he was going to work it out when he got to the end. He didn't, course, he didn't, get to didn't live that. long enough. Right. Now, for some uh, reason, this reminds me of, uh, went to a great screening of Orson Welles' film, A Touch, uh, Touch of Evil, right. uh, where they reconstructed the film based on his his notes, how he wanted it done. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the studio would always mess with his stuff. And so they re-edited the film and put him in scenes that were missing and, you know, they were taken out and got the story structure and the archiving the way Wells wanted it. The thing that immediately struck the audience was the opening of the film, which is, suspense, a bomb is placed in a car on the Me- in Mexico. It goes to the border and blows up. Mm-hmm. So who is investigating? This is, you got Char- Charlton Heston playing a Mexican detective. And it's an incredible film. But the... The reason why it's so important to solve this, and it's such a crisis, is because remember when this movie was made, you still had the Cold War going on, and that is because the fact that America and Mexico have an open border, freedom of democracy <laughs> against the Soviet Union, where people cannot even go from you know one one province or whatever to another without you know police permission. And this was a beacon of freedom and liberty, of democracies, that here this open border was threatened by this one bomb attack. <laughs> and attitudes were changing at the time, by the time I saw this, when that was given as the main reason why this was such an important case. If you want the audience laugh, just the difference of perspective between when it was made and now. Yeah, that's... That's a hard one. My uh, my uh, favorite moment of all, you know, all of his great films was his penultimate um, about the necktie murderer, Frenzy. Oh, the Frenzy, yeah. And uh, a good portion of the way through the film, um, our necktie murderer murders somebody. Well, that's Hitchcock. Yes. Yeah. And he drops, he, he, he misplaces an earring. Which would give away, and you spend a good 10, 12 minutes with no dialogue, just him trying to find the truck, but you know, so that he could get you know, uh, get the earring back. Yeah, I remember that scene very well. And he's he's desperately going through them to find that little piece of jewelry, and there's no dialogue. It's just it's just the acting the situation. And it's it's just mesmerizing. The other trick that Hatchock would do would get you rooting for the bad guy when you least expect to, like in Strangers on a Train, where the uh, the killer drops 
same idea. He loses or drops something to carnival, whatever, in the gutter. He drops it down the gu- uh, drain grate to the gutter. And you're rooting for him to get it. To get it. Um, <laughs> to that is it. one of the hardest things to do in entertainment is to make the an anti-hero. The bad guy sympathetic so that you root for the bad guy, not the good guy. Yeah, the thing is you don't think about rooting for him until he drops it down the drain grate. Yeah. Uh, uh, Amadala's uh, he's a, a um, Israeli short. She she did the ballet movie. Black one. one. Yes, yeah, so you know who I'm talking about. But the professional, uh, Jean, I his name's French, John something. But yeah, you know, I can look it up. Uh, he's a hitman. Yeah. But the police officer, the sergeant or the captain, or whatever, is more corrupt. Then the hitman, he is trying to save this little girl from this corrupt. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's really a good movie. It's a very good movie, a very famous movie. Reminds me of the true story. We had this guy on the show, Freeway Ricky Ross, the uh, big drug dealer here in L.A. Professional. Uh, he was sentenced to life in prison. Then they produced 25 years. There's a Freeway Ricky Ross task force which sent him to prison was more corrupt and criminal than he was, and they all wound up going to prison. The strange world we live in, Master Jack. And I'd also like to mention that Travis has been very, uh, very helpful. Uh, on the, you'll notice if you read my books, which you all should, Travis winds up being quoted every one of my true journalists, or is a consistent. It was uh, Jean Renault was the hitman. Gary Oldman was the corrupt cop, and it was Natalie Portman's first movie. Really, I think uh, Sarah Jessica yeah, Parker's was, was Sarah Jessica Parker's first movie, the one she did with Bruce Willis. Um, I could not figure out how she got the gig for that. I said, "Boy, who did she sleep with to get this job?" <laughs> I never thought I'd see her in a film again. She winds up being a big star. Shows what I know. Let's see. Well, oh, it's almost that time of the day. There's uh, a picture of you I have here. I'm holding up the microphone so our fans can see it. Of you looking like Captain Jack Sparrow. What? Oh, no. <laughs> what was How that? How do you have that? <laughs> what is that about? Well, it was one of the raves I was at. I was backstage probably. I don't know what picture it is, but I can assume it's, it's a pirate-themed rave, and I'm probably with one of my dancers. Yeah, you're dressed up like Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Those parties cost a lot of money to throw, and sometimes the costumes were part of that cost. So that was good. <laughs> you get to write it off. Hey, that one, that rave I went to in Seattle that you put on, it was about 35,000 people. You had five different uh, rooms. That's a lot. That's a little high. It probably felt that way for you. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, it took up, it was, a, it was pretty monstrous. And uh, at that time, there was actually several of us that did that. It wasn't just me alone. There was secondary. I mean, you had, like, five rooms with and, in one, you've got techno, and the other one, you've got jungle. And they, I mean, they had, yeah, move your phone again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, Lori. Hello. There you are. Hello. Um, oh, we got to go. It's that time. Hey, Travis Webb, I'm looking forward to seeing you. You going to go to the AVN <laughs> in Vegas this year? Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that later. That sounds good, yeah. Okay. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Hey, Burl. Yeah.